This podcast is brought to you by Hostfully. We make property management software and digital guidebooks. To learn more and sign up for our industry newsletter, please visit Hostfully.com. Hey, fellow hosts, if you want to take your hosting business to the next level, then join the Short-Term Rental Profit Academy. Whether you own, rent, or manage properties, we have the resources, the tools, and the community to help you achieve your goals. The Short-Term Rental Profit Academy is ready for any host, any size, and includes a membership portal with over 50 hours of video lessons, a private Facebook group, and weekly live coaching calls, where Eric and I give you direct feedback and help you solve your biggest challenges. We're all about taking action and getting results. So if you're ready to start crushing it, sign up for our program at strprofitacademy.com. Welcome to Get Paid for Your Pad, the definitive show on Airbnb hosting, featuring the best advice on how to maximize profits from your Airbnb listing, as well as real-life experiences from Airbnb hosts all over the world. Welcome. Get paid for your pad. Get paid for your pad. Get paid for your pad. Welcome to episode number 342 of Get Paid for Your Pad. Today I have a really interesting guest. His name is Syed Latif. He's the CEO and founder of Hostly, uh, a company out of Chicago. He had up to 165 units pre-COVID and he was looking to do about $6 million in revenue in 2020. And he managed to scale that business in under two years, uh, which is uh, pretty crazy to think about. So excited to learn about how you did that, Syed. So Syed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jasper. Absolutely. And uh, you are based in Chicago. And of course, I have a special... Uh, connection with that city because that's the city where I lived for a year and a half while I was working in finance. And so I, uh, I have fond memories of the volleyball on the beach, the barbecues that people would throw as soon as the winter was over, as soon as the cold disappeared, people would just come out and the whole city would explode. So I have, uh, I have a very, very fond memories of that city. So yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Nothing is better than summertime Chicago. You know, I was raised here in Chicago all my life. So Chicago is a great city. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can't wait to go back there. I haven't been for a while. But let's let's dive in. Um, You have a pretty incredible story. Uh, You managed to go from zero to all the way up to 165 master lease units in under two years, which is, which is crazy to think about because that's so fast. Uh, and you were able to do that by building strong relationships with larger landlords. So that's really, really interesting. And uh, I can't wait to dive in deep and understand more about how you did that. But let's, uh, let's start off with a quick introduction. Could you share, um, you know, how, did you, how did you get into Airbnb initially? Yeah, so. I'll tell you my background is finance also. You know, I went to school here in Chicago, DePaul University. Uh, after I graduated, I got into, you know, corporate America. I worked at a Fortune 500 company as a financial analyst. I started getting, after a few years, I started getting into this bigger pockets phase where I listened to all the bigger pockets podcasts. And everything bigger pockets would say would be about house hacking. So 
I would always want more than what I had working at a salary nine to five job. So I ended up um, looking into buying a multifamily property for myself. Um, it was a four unit building in Chicago and I had a basement unit as well. So, which would be the fifth unit. So I purchased that building, you know, in 2017. And in one of the units of the building is where I furnished it for Airbnb. And at that time, I listened to another podcast in Bigger Pockets about a guy that was killing it on Airbnb. So I said, hey, why don't I try it out and see how it goes? And in that time, it was February um, where I got it up and running. And then in March, I ended up making two times of what the rent would be from a long-term tenant. And I was like, well, you know, this is something crazy. And then it started getting into April and May and I started making three times as much. And I was like, wow, you know, this is like amazing. Like this is like too good to be true. So I said, Hey, you know, I want to make my entire building Airbnb. So as tenants were renewing their leases, I would put each one of these units onto Airbnb and I would keep on continuously get the same result three times rent, you know, and then in the slower season, there would be a little less because Chicago is big seasonality, but, um, in the summertime, I want to make three times rent. And I said, like, you know, there's like this huge opportunity. It doesn't matter how many units I keep adding on. I keep getting the same result. So I went to my sister. I said, hey, you know, you got to change your units in your building that you bought as well into Airbnb. And again, she started getting the same results. And I said, hey, you know, there's like an opportunity here. I need to, you know, expand on it. So towards the end of the year, I ended up creating a company, um, Hostly. You know, it, it was a property management company. I said, hey, I want to find other people and do this for them. And at that time, I, this was a business model I thought would be what I would be doing for a long time. You know, it was a management model where I take a percentage of you know, everyone's revenue and I would manage their Airbnbs for them. I quickly realized I did not like that model at all. You know, I learned that when you have too many um, homeowners, it's like they have a control over you and they're like your boss. You know, they tell you what to do, how to do it not happy with the results. So it was about that time where I ended up leaving my job for this, doing it full-time too. So, um, you know, it was 2018, January 1 is when I was on my own for good, you know? There was one client that I met at a networking event and the individual at the networking event is like, we're looking for somebody to do Airbnbs in our building. And I was like, what? I'm like, like this is like the most perfect like um, opportunity for me. I was like, you know, me, have me do it. So. Um, I eventually started following up with them and calling them every day for maybe like three months. The owner of like the company was just like so busy, did not care. You know, I was just so persistent on being able to get a hold of him. And I think finally I just started walking into the office and trying to see who's like the decision maker and have them like, you know, see me face to face and try to, you know, make something happen. You know, um, I initially pitched him on doing property management and he furnished it. He ended up telling me he doesn't want to get into the furniture business. He doesn't want to buy furniture and, you know, own it and do all this. So at the last ditch effort, I was like, hey, can I just rent two units from you? And he's like, if you, want, if you pay rent, you can rent how many units you want to rent. And, um, like, this landlord had bought, you know, more than 1,000 units, like, on the north side of Chicago. So I ended up taking two units on with him. And um, I le I, so this was, like, the start of my master lease business. In this time, I was successful. I was paying him rent, and it ended up coming into the winter time. And I was like, "Hey, listen, 
these are doing good. Can I take on more units? And then you said, yeah, sure, take on more units. How many do you want? I said, let me get these four. And then I added those four on. And then it happened where a few months down the road, I'm like, hey, can I get more? So I added a five more. And then a month goes on. I'm like, hey, can we add 10 more? And he's like, yeah, let's do 10 more. And then just by proving to him I could, you know, hit the monthly rent is when he ended up get, allowing me to get my business to 35 units with him. So that was the start of like my master lease business during that time. And uh, I could keep going um, from there. So then they came to a point where our relationship kind of got a little shaky, you know, for whatever reason, I think I was just too small for him. And he started growing his like, you know, development business, like much bigger. He started buying all these buildings and he just really did not answer the phone with me out of nowhere. I don't know why. So I started getting worried because we kind of did some of these units on a handshake deal. And at any time, I didn't want to be in a situation where he tells me to pick up my stuff and leave. So one, I was like, all right, you know, we need to start making these into writing and contracts, you know, and then negotiating a contract after you started doing business was not the best idea. You know, we got into a lot of like um, arguments with within our lawyers and everything. But um, I started seeing like, hey, I can't put all my eggs in one basket, which is one person, you know, I need to start scaling out to other big time landlords in Chicago. So what I ended up doing is, you know, going online and finding a list of the top property management companies in Chicago, you know, and then I saw like a few of them and I'm like, all right, let me just talk, try to target this one. And then this company, I said it simple as this. I am doing business. I'm doing an Airbnb business with XYZ. Can I do the same exact with you? And again, I don't get a response on, on the first email. It, I was so persistent and I was like hungry initially when I started my business, you know. And finally, after a lot of persistence, he responds back, let's get on a phone call. Then the same process, you know, I've finally been able to get on a phone call with him. He said, okay, fine, meet me in person. And then uh, you could tell a lot if you're going to do business with somebody by like meeting them in person, you know, you could really tell like um, who's in front of you and everything. So it's as simple as showing him the units that I am with the other landlord and saying, Hey, look, I've been paying him rent every month for the past year. Um, I like to take on units with you as well. Um, and his units were in a better area, you know, and a pretty good price. And I started adding on two, three, four, five, ten at a, at a time to finally get like, you know, 30 with him. Then now having two, two big time players in Chicago, it was much easier getting another big time landlord on the phone with me. Cause I simply would say, Hey, I'm doing business with XYZ and ABC, you know, and they would then respond to my emails like almost instantly before it would be like months before I get a response. You know, now it's like they were responding instantly like, Hey, let's get on the call. And I just kept on pitching the different landlords the same story and um, showing them success. Um, hey, I know what I'm doing. I know how to manage it. And then I just kept adding units and units and making relationships with them. Finally, I had, you know, 165 units in February of 2020. Man, that's a, that's a, that's a crazy story and congratulations on, uh, on what you have achieved. There's a bunch of things that I wanted to touch on. Number sure. one is, you know, the persistency, right? Uh, you can't just, if you want to really connect with people like these larger landlords that have that many units, you got to be really, really persistent your approach, right? You can't give up after, because a lot of people who, you know, are kind of at that level, like they're not, they get probably like a ton of emails, 
ton of phone calls every day. So, you know, you have to kind of push through in order to, to get a hold of them. So number one, um, you know, great job on, on being persistent and, and just going after what you want. One question is the, the seasonality. Um, I know in the winter, Chicago gets really, really cold. Uh, there's a lot of wind. I remember just walking back and forth from the office in the winter. It was, it was pretty harsh. Um, how do you deal with the, with the seasonality? Sure. Um, first, I'll talk about the um, being persistent. You know, um, and that's something that I kind of miss that I don't have that drive anymore. I'm being so persistent. Initially in my business, when I had nothing, it was so hard to get that first phone call and I would just keep driving it, driving and driving it until that person comes to me. And then I eventually started getting comfortable on getting those instant responses. But then it comes to a point where, you know, you used up all your resources on the people you connect with in Chicago. And then I started thinking about like, hey, I want to get into this market or in this neighborhood. And I just don't have that, you know, that drive anymore to be able to like continuously call and get calls rejected over and over when I started getting used to having it being easy. So, um, you know, persistence is huge. Like I need somebody to like light some fire under my ass to start doing that all over again. You know, like I need something to happen to me to um, have that persistence, but it's very important in the beginning. Um, it, it's not going to come easy. You know, if you're trying to get into this business and you're trying to, you're kind of down about like, Hey, I can't get somebody to answer my phone call about this. You just got to keep trying and trying like no other. So, um, yeah, that's my thing on being persistent. And to your second question about seasonality, there's huge seasonality in Chicago. Summertime, like I said, summertime in Chicago is like the best time. And that relates to how much like revenue I make for my units as well. It's almost like a bell curve, you know, in, in the summertime from, you know, April to October, like kind of when like the marathon and Halloween ends is where you make your money in Chicago. And then November and December is kind of break even. And then January, February, Chicago is so dang cold where you do not make any money at all. You're at huge losses, you know, huge gas bills, frozen pipes, you know, it's not great at all. So you kind of have to manage your cash flow and reserves properly throughout the year to be able to be ready for um, being able to pay for that January and February. And I could tell you, like, I always have those hiccups where I'm too focused on the growth and I end up spending all my money back in um, adding more units where I end up being scrappy during like the January and February time where I started delaying and deferring payments from, from utilities and, you know, paid rent, like, you know, five days late waiting for that money to come in. So I can't say that I do it the best way. I understand how you should do it. But even with understanding that I always end up um, spending my cash too much. And, you know, it put me in a very bad situation during this COVID time, right? If, January and February, I was at huge losses and I was charging up my credit cards that I just opened up for that month, knowing that like March and April is going to, everything's going to pick back up. Everything's going to be fine. You know, I, had, I ended up adding like 50 units in February, taking on debt on my business. And all of a sudden, all right, I'm ready. You know, middle of March, things are going to pick up. Spring break happens. You know, people are going to start traveling and then boom, I get hit with the brick wall, left with like um, this huge losses for the first two months and no cash and to rack up this huge debt and then I had no bookings left. So it was a very surreal feeling, you know, like I get like anxious talking about it now after going through it. You know, I, I can't even imagine going through something like that again. And then at the time it was just like too much going on um, that like I can't even reflecting on it. It makes me feel like, wow, how did that happen? You know? So yeah, so seasonality in Chicago is huge and I'm sure that's normal in most markets from my understanding. So 
you just got to manage your cash reserves properly or be ready to um, be savvy enough to be able to get through some of that time. Which right. I feel like I am a little savvy. You know, I was able to figure it out even this time, even during the worst time possible. You know, I was able yeah. to get through it. Well, that that gives confidence for the future, right? Because if you were able to make it through this, then yeah. you you should be able to make it through any time. So about the seasonality, you said in January, February, you, you don't see a lot of demand. So do you just have a lot of your places empty or do you maybe try and find people who, locals who want to rent, rent it for like a month or two? Yeah, you know, obviously if I could get somebody wanting to come rent for a month or two, that would be great. It's easy to say that because everybody else in Chicago is thinking the same thing. And you're talking about your rates being so low and everyone has the opportunity to book, you know, 7,000 places in Chicago. It's easy to say that, hey, I'll just get somebody for one month, two months. It doesn't always happen that way. You end up getting occupancies of like 40% at low ADR. So you still take losses no matter what. There's nothing, nothing you can do about it. Got it. Yeah. There's no ma magic pill there. Right. <laughs> cool, man. So one question for you is... Um, you know, you mentioned that you set up most of the deals with those landlords on like a handshake arrangement. If you, if you were to start over again, like, w would you do that different? So obviously, you know, you get excited about somebody giving you the opportunity to get into um, a whole bunch of units. You know, um, I wouldn't have gotten that opportunity from nobody else, you know. So obviously it's easy to say to like, if you go back in time, what can you change, you know? And even if I could go back in time, I'd be able to uh, put stuff in that contract to be able to get out of it faster than I was able to get out of it. I had like 90 day out clauses in that contract after I made it after negotiating with that. But now I wish I had like, you know, at the end of the month out clauses, you know, because I never would have expected what would happen now during, you know, COVID. But um, yeah, definitely it's always best to put things on paper. You know, it was almost that like we were adding units so fast. And we had the original units under like a standard lease that a landlord tenant has in Chicago, but we needed to make a more of like a commercial lease business agreement between us two because there was like too much into it and going on. And yeah, I, um, I do feel like our relationship got sour after having to go through that negotiation as well. You know, um, we stopped talking to each other and only talked through lawyers. So the thing is, when it gets to that point, like. Um, you only want to do business with people that you can, um, you know, call and um, talk to. You know, I don't like being in business. Like I, I know some of my colleagues um, are, you know, doing business with big property management companies that like you, you just live and die by the contract. For me, the contract really doesn't mean much. It's about the relationship you have with the person across from you because things are going to change. And I never followed a contract to its entirety ever, ever, ever. So to me, it's contract is just words on a paper that sometimes, you know, come of value. Um, but whatever the case is, um, our relationship didn't work out um, with this land, the initial landlord, you know, um, um, and I was, because of the COVID time, I started decommissioning all the units with him because it was, it's, if your landlord is not working with you to, you know, get through this, if it becomes like an adversary versus a partner, you don't want to do business with them. So he was uh, my first person like, hey, I need to get out of all my units with him. What can I negotiate with him to get out of? So yeah, to, to let you know, at a point in February 2019 or 2020, I had 165 units, but I don't have 165 units at this day. You know, I reduced significant amount of units since COVID started. At this time right now, I have about 100, um, which is still a decent amount, but reduce your business like, you know, 30 something percent, um, you know, it was not fun.
No, no, I, uh, I understand that. Hello from San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Hostfully. We make property management software and digital guidebooks for companies all around the world. We're grateful to join Jasper in helping property managers get through this tough time with information and insights that can help their business. As a company, we're also trying to find all the ways that we can help. We can share resources, and we're already doing that on our blog. And another idea that the team came up with is using Hostfully guidebooks as local guides for emergency services. So far, we've built guides for Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and also Alcoholics Anonymous. If this is an idea that you'd like to do, we would love to help you out. Please email me at margo at hostfully.com and I can show you how to get started. And you can also, of course, sign up for our blog at hostfully.com too. We hope that you and your family and loved ones are healthy and happy, and we trust that we are going to get through this together. Take care. What about the the onboarding of those properties? Because I imagine if you if you just take on so many new properties in such a short time, like how do you manage that in terms of finances? Because I imagine you have to pay maybe a couple months of rent upfront, a deposit, and then did you have to furnish those units as well? So I had to furnish them myself, so I had to come up with the money for that. But the way I was able to scale up so fast and um, like so easily in the initial is with my landlords, I negotiate upfront rent credits, like um, the first two to three months for free. And then um, there's no security deposit or moving fee or anything like that. Um, so I'm able to make, make back my, you know, furniture costs initially after three months, depending on like the time of like the year I onboarded these units. So it was easy for me to recycle that cash over and over again to be continuously adding money. So initially, I would just take proceeds from the business, put it back in to buy new furniture, and I make that money back within like two, three months. So all of my deals that I do, I won't do a deal if I don't get rent up front for free. That's just my criteria. And that's kind of sometimes puts me back into getting some units because some landlords are like, no, you know, um, your, your competitors are offering, you know, no free rent up front. And I'm like, yeah, you know, for also my competitors, I haven't raised like, you know, $10 million or whatever hundred million dollars, you know, Sonder raised and stuff. So I tell them, you know, the difference between them and me is you get the person in front of you, a local person in Chicago that if stuff does go wrong, we'll figure it out together, you know? And sometimes that works, you know, they understand that you're in front of you. Like I, I know during the situation, like a lot of the big time players left these landlords empty handed, you know, when I didn't. Got it. What about is because uh, you furnish the units yourself. So yeah. the units that you reduced, uh, you said you went down from 165 to about 100. Yeah. Does that mean you now have uh, in storage like 65 <laughs> furnished sets? Yeah, almost. So, but take it back a little bit to answer your question, like how I furnished them. I told you from a capital perspective, I was recycling money up front with those um, upfront rent credits, but I would. I would work with my sister. This is what she was good at. You know, she's good at designing and stuff like that. But before it was fun for her. All of a sudden, when she started working with me, she doesn't like designing anymore because we turn out so many units and it doesn't become fun when you have to do like, you know, 10, 20 units at a time. You know? So luckily she is good at doing what she's, she's good at doing. You know, we buy stuff from like Wayfair, Amazon, Ikea, Target, Walmart, nothing special, you know? Um, but I would say my units are top 5% in best looking units in Chicago on Airbnb. 
And then within that is we intake all the items, you know, intaking items is probably like the biggest headache to make sure all those boxes come in and storing them. And then, you know, you hire a lot of handymen. Um, we use an app called like TaskRabbit to like um, get like as many handymen as possible. You know, I would be running like like six, seven, eight of them. And, you know, you make that initial relationship with them and start using them going forward without taking it off that app or whatever. So that's kind of like how we did it. And eventually, you know, things come about. You pay people well and uh, you find good people, then you could get stuff up and running. So don't get me wrong, it's really challenging. I'm not super involved in the onboarding of the units, but I know my sister goes through like the craziest stuff with like getting these units up and running. And luckily I'm not involved in that. And then to answer your question about like decommissioning of the units. So when I decommissioned 60, maybe 20 of them were not my furniture. So that helps. Maybe 15 of them, I gave the furniture away to the landlord to get out of the deal and paid him money on top of it. You know, like um, that, that was my way out, my initial landlord um, that I don't have a relationship with anymore. And then other ones, I took the furniture out and put in storages all over basements and buildings I own or like garages. You know, we have like um, you know, 15 units worth of furniture right now. Oh, yeah, a lot of this stuff. I also agree with people's methodology where it's like, you know, once... Furniture costs a lot of money when you put it in, but after you put it in, it's not worth anything. You know, the cost of having to like um, take away all these mattresses that are nasty used, you know, and then like this furniture that's broken, you're disassembling furniture to put in a storage to reassemble again, and you're paying for storage. Like um, the cost is not worth it. Sometimes you just discard what you have, you know, but the cheapness in me made me like save all that stuff and I hope I get value out of it or I might end up just discarding it at some point, you know. Yeah, it's so true. Um, I mean, they say like when you buy a car, as soon as you drive it out of the showroom, it's it drops in value by like 30%. With furniture, that's pretty much like 70%. It's crazy. Um, when I was a student, I furnished my entire room because I had no money. I furnished it entirely with furniture that other people literally just put on the street. But, you know, it still functions. <laughs> you know, the couch, you can still sit on it. Um, there you go. So yeah, that's uh, that's that's funny. Yeah, furniture. So we talked about a lot of things. I really understand and and appreciate your your model of dealing with a few larger owners in versus having, like, let's say you have 165 owners under a management model. That means you have to maintain relationships with 165 people, which obviously is complicated. It's you know, it's not something that you, you necessarily want to do. So I, uh, I think that model is, um, is really awesome. What's your vision for the next year or two? So for me, um, my vision is I'm month to month trying to survive what we're going through right now. Like once COVID hit, like in March, you know, I lost all my bookings overnight, you know, Airbnbs, extenuating circumstance or whatever policy that they changed, you know, I lost everything. And at the same time, my landlords, I owed them, you know, $300,000 worth of rent at the end of the month. So like the day that like this happened where it hit you, the US, and then everyone was like, hey, lockdown, lockdown, we need to um, stop everything, is I started just showing up to like my landlord's offices. They got really upset. They're like, I've never had somebody just show up without telling me that they're showing up to talk about business, but I'm like, this is the situation, you know? And I told them, Hey, I need to exit out. You know, I need out. 
there's no way I'm going to be able to pay rent. There's no reason why you need to have me in your buildings. And we need to, you know, part ways. So I had about nine landlords with those 165 units. And my strategy was stick with the three, two or three landlords that I've had a good relationship with that I have the most units with. So with these two landlords, I have maybe like, you know, 90 of my units and they were the most understanding about the situation. And they um, were like, okay, we'll come up with a solution to, you know, let's share revenue or let's, you know, make it half rent for you for until you're able to get back on your feet. Um, which was like the most amazing like conversation to like hear, you know, especially with my two biggest landlords, but the remainder seven, some had like 10 units, some had 20, some had two, some had one. Um, I start that relationship with the landlord, hoping that I keep on adding more, but sometimes it doesn't happen, you know? So some landlords were are very understanding about the situation and say, all right, hey, just take up your stuff and leave. Like, okay, great. Other landlords were like, hey, I'm going to shoot you if you don't pay me my money. I had that um, happen, you know, or I'm going to sue you until um, you have nothing left. And I'm saying stuff like, this is, I'm not a COVID charity organization. You're paying me more money or, or we evict you and blah, blah, blah. And this was like initially like right when this happened, right? So I'm like, okay, you know, let's see how it goes. Fortunately, after like a lot of persistence and negotiation, I was able to settle out of these contracts. You know, um, some contracts I had to pay, some I had to give up furniture. I had to say that, hey, I'm going bankrupt anyway, so I'm not going to even pay you, you know. But whatever it is, like, I settled out of all of them or all of the ones that I wanted to settle out of. You know, it was like, per like, it was the worst thing that could ever happen, but it was like perfect storm of like being able to get out of these deals that I wanted to get. I got out of every deal that I wanted to get out of, you know, um, without huge, huge financial burden. Some financial burden, but not huge. At the end of it, I was able to stick with two landlords that I have right now. And um, with them, they said, like, listen, let's see how things go month by month, you know. Um, during the times of Mar March, April, May, in March, I actually had some pretty good occupancy, at 80% occupancy, but at super low rates. You know, I had a strategy of like, hey, um, who's actually going to stay at my units? Nobody's traveling, but only locals could stay at my units. And what I'm going to do is if a local can get a vacant unit for, you know, $2,000 rent right now, I'm going to have my furnished unit for $1,900. i will beat the long-term tenant vacant unit market. And that was, you know, decently successful. I, this is kind of like when most of our colleagues did it too, you know. This is like when, kind of when Sonder did it, but I did it like um, immediately like the next day. And I was able to be pretty successful for March um, to get 80% occupancy. Um, you know, in April, it was actually, I was like, hey, um, things might have gotten a little bit better. Let me increase some prices in April and let's not just focus on these long-term tenants. So I kind of increased prices, changed my like, you know, price lap settings around a little bit and it ended up being a bad gamble. I ended up getting like 65% occupancy, but similar type revenue. So it's not worsting at the end of the day. It actually might be good that I had the same revenue as March, um, but a lower occupancy from an operating cost perspective. But in, and then May, it just ended up getting better, you know, um, it back to like the, you know, 75, 80% occupancy um, with higher ADRs than the previous months. And then June, again, better than May. And it's again at like 80%, 85% occupancy. But still, this is 50, 40% less than what it should be from the previous year, you know. Um, so my guess 
right now is July is going to even be better than June, and August is even going to be better than July. And then September, like that's when my bell curve of Chicago goes down, and it's just going to go down as like normal. You know, I think things are going to get better, but not like what it was last year. And I don't think this model of master lease is like so sustainable from the revenue I'm getting as of today. I need to convince my landlords that I have right now that, hey, this is just a lost cause, you know, for, for this year. We need to stick to this, you know, percentage of revenue share that we have going on right now until um, things bounce back, hopefully next year, you know. But they are in a contract that's month to month, so they could just say no. And then my business is done completely. So it's very like do or die for me in the situation right now because one of the landlords is saying like, hey, you know, my long-term tenant demand is still there. You know, why do I need to give you a break if I could just rent it out to somebody else and get paid my full amount? And I said, yeah, I understand. And if that's the case, then I need to part ways with you. Hopefully, you know, we could do this again next year, you know, uh, to scale right back up with it. And he said, all right, let's talk in the middle of July to see where we're at with things. So like hopefully in like July, um, things get better and I'm able to pay him rent to tell him to like, um, you know, let's, let's take it easy one more month, two more months and then hopefully get him into like the winter time and then h- him see that like, Hey, he's not going to rent it out. So long term tenant, so just keep me until like, you know, however much I could pay him. But I have been paying them a decent amount of money for being in a pandemic to be able to uh, make the revenues I'm making. Um, is no joke. There's a lot of people that are making zero dollars, you know, um, and I was making $200,000 in March, $200,000 April. So they were at um, break even and slight losses during those months. But finally, during this last month of May, I made a little profit, you know, with the current terms I had. And in June, it's going to be the same thing. So I'm not at a, a complete loss. I'm paying down my debt a little bit. You know, some of these government funding loans are helping to be able to um, get me through this. So at the end of it, I'll be okay in the sense of like, I don't have anything bad on my record or anything and I won't get sued by anybody, you know, but I was able to, you know, from my, my business for the money that I made in 2019, I made about like $3.2 million in 19 and I was running at a 20% net income margin. So like, you know, like six, $700,000 worth of net income, I was able to buy some buildings, you know. So I won't come out of this like in the worst position, but um, there's a lot of upside if I, I'm still sticking around till next year. If I was able to get through this, then being able to add more units, I'm very confident that I could do that operationally. And if the demand is back, I want to get my business to like, you know, 2X, 3X, 4X, 5X, you know, whatever I can um, to do is what I want to do. So it's really do or die for me for the next few months. So let's see how it goes, you know. Okay. Yeah. Let's hope for the best. And, uh, you know, the one, the one expression that I keep thinking of is, uh, you know, how to say like, uh, smooth waters don't make, uh, outstanding captains. That's, that's, you know what I mean? Like for, cause you know, obviously for, for, for us, it's been difficult as well. And, and you know, that's, that's kind of how I feel this, this whole crisis is almost like a, it's like an entrepreneurial storm almost that, it does, I feel like it does sharpen our, our skills and it just makes us grow personally. So, you know, if we can get through this, then we can pretty much get through anything. Because, I mean, it will never get worse than this, right? No, um, what we've gone through that. for the last three months. Right. Um, so, before we wrap this up, one question I want to ask you is, I mean, 
for you to have that many units and to suddenly have all your bookings canceled, you know, having to negotiate with all these landlords, it must, I can only imagine how much stress that must have caused. How did you mentally deal with that? I don't know how I did it, to be honest. Um, I got that question from um, one of my colleagues that went through like the 2008 crisis with, and he's in real estate development. And he, he went from like having a lot to having to move in with his parents, with his family, you know, wife and kids. And he asked me, he's like, I don't get how you're, uh, how you're talking to me and not being like super stressed. And then I just think it was like so overwhelming of like all the stuff that was happening. And really, maybe in the back of my mind, I said like, it was nothing wrong that I did. This is something that once in a you know, lifetime in the next thousand years, like, you know, it's a once in a lifetime thing, you know, and what I did was just be super transparent to all my business partners and my team, you know, about the situation and just play day by day, you know, and the little wins that I got after the biggest loss of my life was, you know, kept me going to get motivation to the next one. And then finally I kept knocking off like termination of like agreements with my landlords and, and just keep me motivated to keep negotiating and keep getting there. You know, maybe initially it was just too overwhelming and I didn't understand like the extent of what was going on, but I was ready to just like, all right, we got to figure out there's nothing else I can do. Awesome, man. Well, congratulations on, uh, on your success and, and making it through this crisis the way that you, uh, the way that you did. Um, you're also part of our SDR Legends Mastermind, so I'm excited to uh, connect with yeah. you more and be on this journey together and grow together. So thank you for taking the time to, to speak to me on this, uh, on this podcast. It's definitely really, really interesting to, to hear how you manage all of this, especially during the, during the crisis. I think we can learn a lot from that. So, um, so yeah, any final words before we uh, wrap this up? So uh, my thing is having a reputation, having the right business partners that you're working with will set you up for success. Choose your partners wisely. Choose your partners wisely. I like that one. All right, Sayed, thank you so much for, for joining us. And um, to the listeners, thank you for listening. Or if you're watching on YouTube, thank you for watching. And uh, we'll see you next week with another podcast of uh, Get Paid for Your Pets. Take care. Take care. Get paid for your pet. 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 Get 